You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Lalo Fiorelli has been a fighter pilot and an airline captain. His first book was Wild Splendors of California. His newest book is Secret Splendors of the Desert, Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Thank you for joining me, Lalo. Thank you for having me. Lalo, tell us where Anza Borrego is. It is, in, by and large, in southeast San Diego County. Let's say that we are west of the southern portion of the Salton Sea. Give, just give us, it's the largest state park in California, Correct. and it's not very well known. How did Correct. that happen? Um, years ago, when we first started going there, and this is one of my favorite parts, there used to be a sign when you left town. Now, you have to understand this is a one road, not street, road town, okay, with three county roads coming into it. And leaving the town onto one of the county roads there was a sign, a wooden sign, nicely done, okay? And it said, words to the effect, I no longer remember the exact wording, but it said, Anza Borrego Desert, if you like it here, don't tell anyone. And that's my answer to your question. (laughs) The sign's gone, but I think the sentiment remains somewhat uh, to those of us that have been going out there for a while. And uh, in the Wayback Machine, they had the idea that this was going to be the next Palm Springs. Okay, it's logical. It's less than an hour south of uh, where you would leave the freeway and go to most of those uh, desert towns, desert cities up there just off of uh, 10, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it never materialized. So the only thing that has really developed to any significance are uh, orchards. And they, of course, don't bring more people there. One thing that uh, interests me about this place is just uh, give us an idea of what the basic landscape is like. This isn't exactly a desert, though, is it? Not, not in the sand dunes desert that we think of it. I suspect that the... Uh... The missed idea in that is that we think deserts are sand dunes, because <laughs> yes. most of them are not. Uh, this is part of the Colorado desert and is, in fact, typical landform. Um, almost all of the landforms have been caused by erosion generally. The major factor in the erosion has been uh, water flow, so from uh, rain, and uh, it is very typical. It is very close to the same that we found when we worked in the Mojave, and um, not so far different than Death Valley, except for the dunes areas in Death Valley, which are relatively small, as I'm sure you know. Um. Borrego means sheep in Spanish. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, are there still sheep there? Well, yes. This is one of my favorite things to rant about. So 35 years is how long I've been traveling out there. And as a matter of fact, 
We just went on a non-agenda four days in the field to sort of relax trip there. And even now, everything we did were all things that we've never done before. So there's no end. However, I believe the sheep are a myth. Okay, I'm kidding, um, but not for me. Uh, I have gone into the places where they are commonly cited, and they don't seem to be bothered much about people, by the way. And I'll go up there before sunrise and park myself and, you know, be very astute and all that stuff. And uh, families with kids, little kids, five, six-year-old kids that have been uh, walking out there, making noise and carrying on uh, well below me. I think there's a mile and a half from the start of the trail to um, where the Borrego Palm Grove is in Borrego Palm Canyon, that being the place I'm speaking of. Anyway, and they'll see them all. They'll see lambs, ewes, rams, kids carrying on uh, and so forth. And somehow or another, I miss them. So yes, they're there. I don't believe it for a word. And I'm tongue-in-cheek with that. <laughs> now, uh, it's pretty mountainous. It's 5,000 feet high. Can be, yes. Yeah. Tell us uh, about uh, how you get around there. I mean, do you, I mean, if it, this is a big park, do they have yeah. lots of roads you can drive on in the park, or do you only have to come to the border and then you've got hundreds or thousands of miles to walk through? Hmm, lots of roads. Let's change that to lots of tracks that you can drive through if you have a, a vehicle that's suitably equipped to do it. What kind of vehicle do you need? Do you have to have a four-wheel drive Jeep kind of uh, deal? It, it doesn't have to be quite as serious as uh, a little Jeep, but it has to be uh, a genuine four-wheel drive. So to me, that means that it has the ability to lock a differential. So the all-wheel drive vehicles um, would fare poorly in many of the places. Now, um, there's a, a, a spring up there, Santa Catarina Spring. Yes. Tell us about Santa Catarina Spring. Santa Catarina Spring is one of those, oh God, I'm going to become a hippie word. Is it really a trippy thing? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, it flows down from an elevation of about 4,400 feet and uh, into Coyote Creek. This is in the north section of the park. Actually, it's the most uh, commonly used area in the park and um, has water in it someplace along its course, mostly year-round, and it doesn't really care um, whether it's been wet, dry, or otherwise, the lower reaches of Coyote Creek will go dry, but the spring itself is uh, rather remarkable. Matter of fact, it is the site of the original land-grant ranch, and the name of the next, I think it was the Rancho de Anza, and then it was taken over by... Um, a gentleman who ran pack trips out of it. It was actually a pack station for quite a few years. At this point, it's been restored as a staging area for uh, people to bring their horses and experience the desert on horseback. Um, 
you've seen bats drinking water from the spring. Yes. I thought that was really interesting. I yes. can't imagine even seeing that. They, they little crawling on the ground like little mice? Or? No, in flight. Oh, really? Yeah, and not realizing what you were seeing except that the tongue of a bat is bright red. <laughs> and after a couple of passes, you realize that that's exactly what's happening, that this animal is actually drinking water in flight from the spring. Wow. Now... How many years have you been going there? We fir- I, I lived in Laguna Beach when I first went there, and we were trying to develop uh, uh, fuel consumption for a four-wheel drive to do what was then a 1,000-mile off-road trip in the Baja. So 1972, roughly. That's a, a long time. Um, when did you decide to... Uh, photograph it and, and, and make a book about it. That, and I guess those two are separate questions. Yes, two separate things, yes. I've, I have been a photographer my whole life, as mm-hmm. you're probably going to get to the picture on the back cover of the book when <laughs> yeah. I was five years old. That's how long ago I started the photography. So did photography even in the uh, beginning. Uh, didn't get the idea for the book until... Oh, I don't know, I guess maybe 1994. And we were just winding down our dive operations in the subaquatic caves of uh, Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. So, and we didn't set out to do a book. What happens to me or us is all of a sudden we become aware that we have a body of work that's big enough to support the idea of a book rather than having set out preordained with we're going to you know, bump our heads against this to produce a book. They seem to happen more organically than that. All three of them have, uh, have happened in that same way. Well, let's ratchet back and talk about your history as a photographer. There is a great photograph of you with a brownie <laughs> camera. I actually had a brownie camera too, so I don't know how many people remember them, but a little box. That's right. Uh, my dad had a little portable darkroom that he used to set up in my mom's kitchen, okay? And at that age, uh, with that camera, I guess, now I'm making that up a little bit. I couldn't swear to you that it was with that actual camera, but um, my dad took me to the park with the camera, and we shot a roll of film, and we came back and with the darkroom set up and developed the film, and I can still remember standing on my mom's kitchen step stool and looking down in the developer, watching these little contact prints come up in the developer and being in awe of it. And as I'm telling you this story, uh, I have an actual vivid memory of seeing the print come up on the paper in the developer. That's a, a powerful experience to see that happen in, in the darkroom like that. And, and I take it that that... Uh, something you pursued for the rest of your life. Yes. It's probably the only thing that I've ever done that I have pursued my entire life. And as you well know, those of us that worked as techies, shall I say, um, all that's on the left side of our brain. So really, uh, my photography has been my creative outlet my whole life. Uh, never occurring to me that I would uh, become active at the level that I am today, of course. As you um, 
developed as a photographer. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the cameras that you've used? Starting, you've started with the brownie. There's a good start. <laughs> Have you ever had, you know, are there certain kinds of cameras or brands or even just certain cameras that you treasured sentimentally? Yes. Um, to say about brands is to proselytize, and I'm more involved in the tool being proper for what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, for quite a few years, I after the underwater where we shot all 35 millimeter, um, I used medium format cameras. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I loved the size of the film, and I loved the. Uh, amount of information in a six centimeter square transparency and what you could do with that, especially as we started to uh, introduce the film by scanning into the computer and resolution and so forth. I am now fully digital. Um, It saddened me, honest, okay, the day I made the decision that like that, okay, now I really have to do it. I always felt that when the digital file was going to produce a better image than what was in the film, that that would be the time at which I would make the shift. And in fact, that's what I did. Well, and that happened, interestingly, in the middle of this project. Yes. Tell me about that realization. Very good. I said I didn't want to go too far right at the first question, but that's the right question to ask next. Thank you. The railroad trestle that you know is a big part of the mm-hmm. story involved. Actually, it represents um, the cultural history part of this book, really. So we were going to photograph it, and I have a son who's a lot younger than me and a lot stronger than me, and so I... Uh, engaged him as my Sherpa, and we carried both a medium format camera that I'd been using forever and a fairly large file size digital camera, and off we went for this several hour hike out to the trestle, where the uh, experiment, as it were, was to photograph the trestle with both cameras, tripod unmoved, Uh, similar focal length lenses or comparably similar focal length lenses and pardon me and then come home and put them through the computer and print them so uh, the film image was scanned into the computer as many of the parameters as we could keep the same between the film and the digital file we did eventually uh, using a large format printer we I printed them as 18 by 22 inch prints, feeling that I wanted to push them, the files, both the file created from the film and the file from the digital uh, capture to see what would happen. And I got the two prints off the machine and I took them out to where they were in good light and I took a four power loop that I used to look at my transparencies on a light box and I sighed a lot because I was looking for what was wrong with the digital file. And it turns out that in particular, places where you would look for sharp edge detail, like the intersection of the main truss beams on the bridge and 
other smaller members, um, heck, even bolts that were, or nuts that were holding bolts onto the tracks and things like that were word I've decided to use crisper on the digital print than they were on the film. And so with a lot of tears and a lot of carrying on, I finally bit the bullet. Plus, I, I will admit uh, the workflow now digitally is uh, much simpler than the workflow using film to get them to the same place. In other words, to have them be in the computer in a form that they will be usable for publication in whatever, you know, in whatever way you're going to publish them. But don't you miss that moment hovering over the, the tray of chemicals? Oh, oh, no, that I was spared from, okay? I have not ever thought that dark rooms were fun. Oh, okay. However, uh, I have said that in one side of my face, and then with another side of the face, I'll tell you that I am fully involved and have uh, journeyman capabilities. Uh, that's not bragging. That's a necessity. Um, using a computer to, um, what word shall I use, to have the images be as close to what my film images looked like as possible, as well as to avoid the pitfalls of uh, over-manipulating the digital image. Uh, if a digital artifact can be seen, if you can tell a digital file has been manipulated, you have gone too far. <laughs> yeah. And um, one of the, the real thorny things, and you bring this up briefly in the book, is this idea of being a natural photographer, yet yeah. we now know that anything you can do digitally can be kind of faked. And, yeah. and that must be kind of troubling for you as having spent so long shooting images on film that really couldn't be faked. That's, that's a, another really wonderful question. So the digital process okay, adds an inherent difficulty to the integrity of my intent as a natural history photographer, that intent being to have my images presented to the public as close to what my mind's eye view remembers them being when I was in the field making them. Okay, so do that with a film image. You have the transparency on the light box to look at for comparison. Now you're in the digital process. Here comes the difficulty. You don't have anything to compare it to. You're left with only your mind, and we know what a terrible thing that can be. So even with the highest degree of integrity towards my stated intent, the digital file is revisionist history. No way around it. Uh, with, high, with high integrity towards my intent, I hope that they're close to what was in front of me when I was making them. But we no longer have a way to truly ensure that. So I have made a big big deal out of stating my intent now that I am digital so people realize that I am not presenting them with something that purports to be a photographic image that 
really uh, the commonly held view is that they're either pure digital constructs or else a highly manipulated version of what would be, purport to be a photographic image. Okay, trying to stay, and that's a commonly held point mm -hmm. of view. Can't help it. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at something in a magazine and you see the people standing on, on the ground, and there is no shadow, or things where you know you you absolutely, at an easy casual glance, know that this is not real. There's a great website called You Suck at Photoshop. I gotta love that. <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, they have some really fun stuff, and they, they have <laughs> images where you can see uh, people sitting in front of a glass table. The people above the glass table look really nice. The people reflections not so nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that that is really you've really captured the idea of why we distrust that. Oh, of course, I distrust it. <laughs> Now, uh, let's talk about uh, the place you photographed. Um, you started this, uh, you've been going there for more than 30 years. Um, and you kind of found that you had reached, uh, I guess, the critical mass of what looked like a, a book uh, 15 years ago, eh? Something like that. Mm -hmm. That's So um, in going there, you've been going there for a long time. And when we look at the book, we just kind of get the idea that you, um, this is like maybe a two-week tour. Just went, oh, here, perfect place, perfect place. Tell us about how hard it is to, fi to, to find the places in the first place, the places where you took the photograph. For example, the trestle, was that easy to find? No. The trestle was not easy to find. Um, there is a thing about photography that's probably what's kept me at it all these years. I have never made an image no matter how good it is and no matter how much acceptance it's had by the public, where I personally feel that that's the quintessential image of that place and that thing, the primary uh, subject of, of the image. I have no end to the fact that I could go back and redo that same image um, almost forever and still see different ways of making the image. So at the point 14 years ago or 12 years ago, whatever it was, that we came up with the fact, oh, look at this, we're having a body of work, that was really the starting point where we started to refine the manner in which we made the photographs. And there's a ton of ODARK 30 wake-ups in here. We generally will scout our sites the day before, and then try to be there uh, before the start of morning nautical twilight to be able to shoot the light as it happens. And um, I'm not a big fan of the sun. Uh, many of the images in that book were shot in morning twilight, and I like the color saturation and the way the images come across to people when they're shot in that, that kind of light. Now, yeah, this brings up the, the question of, what I think, what's often called the magic hours. And, yes, And, and that would be the, the morning. Now, lots of people like the evening. Now, you're, you're a morning fellow. And tell me the difference between the two for you as a mm. photographer. <laughs> Depends on whether I've had a nap or not. <laughs> The morning light is almost always guaranteed to do something that's going to be interesting 
For the evening light to be good, really good, you need something else in the sky that perhaps is going to diffuse the light. Uh, for instance, a, uh, a fairly low stratus layer that allows the sun to set at the far edge of the stratus layer where then the uh, setting sun underlights the stratus layer and turns everything red. And there are a couple of those type of images in this book uh, is neat. Uh, I guess I just, uh, I like the morning. Now, um, when I was uh, looking through the book, I, I kind of made myself these little lists and I said, you know, cool. flora and fauna. Cool. <laughs> flora, big list. Fauna, not so much. I guess that's why they call it a desert. <laughs> well, also, no. Oh, no, it's loaded with things. Mm -hmm. um, but you missed uh, a significant other category. Not all is flora and fauna. There is the mm -hmm. geology sure, that the is landscape. at least as big a part as mm -hmm. either the flora or the fauna. Mm -hmm. And as I call myself, oh, and I don't like names really, but uh, a natural history type rather than a wildlife photographer, those times where I happen to have a critter in an image, the intent of the image was not to photograph the critter, mm, mm. okay, but have the critter appear as, let's say, in situ to the environment that the animal's dealing with, like our friend the hummingbird that's feeding off the agave bloom on the cover, that kind of thing. Right, and the, and the remarkable photo of the rattlesnake in the tree. Ah, he's point. my buddy. <laughs> um, one of the you know primary flora you find there are cacti. Uh, yes. And as you've been out there for so long, do you find yourself becoming an expert on them? And tell us, they must be kind of different to photograph than other flowers or plants. I mean... Hmm. Do I consider myself an expert? No. Um, when I do the what I lovingly call the dog and pony shows, and that's not a derisive term to me. I actually enjoy the shows. I start off by making a big point of the fact that I am neither a biologist nor a botanist nor a geologist. Okay, I'm an old-time field hand, and my knowledge has come from decades in the field and self-study. So no, I don't set myself up as an expert. Matter of fact, to ensure the accuracy of the book, we actually had it uh, fact-checked by the Anzabrego Foundation. Mm. Now, there's no way that I was going to leave myself uh, and what I thought. And it amazed me, actually, how close I was. Mm -hmm. uh, the snake that you speak of, I originally had that as a uh, western diamondback rattlesnake. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the big corrections. He is a red diamond rattlesnake. There are no western diamondback rattlesnakes in that part. But how would a poor kid like me have a clue as to something like that? So they provide the information to me that dials me down. If I see, um, oh, what was another good one? Uh, a poppy. And because we're in California, I call that a California poppy. They correct me and say, no, it's a desert poppy, not a California poppy. And these are nuances that are probably um, best used by the botanists and the other folks whose disciplines these are. 
because to me it is not that important. However, I wish the information that we show in the books to you know have some degree of accuracy. Um, there are lots of uh, beautiful flowers in the desert. I, again, to a certain extent, I suppose, you know, when when you think of desert as sand dunes, you don't think uh, see flowers. But and actually, uh, there are, what were the flowers oh, yeah. that were there were some flowers that were growing yeah it was the verbena yes right in the middle yes. of what looks like a sand dune yes. that's really interesting yes they they are in fact uh on the dunes they are one of their names is san verbena or desert san verbena so an obvious choice um just as a little side thing uh you talked about the sand dunes not being very common in these particular kinds of deserts and in fact, they're not, and just for the humor of it, I was asked at uh, a show I did down there uh, in Brago Springs for the Natural History Association, what dunes are they? And I said, the dump. And they said, what? I said, the county landfill. Okay, that's really the site of the best sand dunes in Anza Borrego. Okay, and that's where those rabina were. Interesting. Now, uh you have a picture of the Ocotillo. Yes. Is, is that a tree, cactus, plant? What the hell is that damn thing? It's very interesting looking. You know, I'm not sure whether it's categorized as a cactus or not, to be honest with you. I mean, it's decidedly a succulent. Um, I can't answer the question. How how big is it? Oh, it can be 12 or 15 feet tall in their single, you know, arms. I've been speaking with Lalo Fiorelli. His new book is Secret Splendors of the Desert, Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Thank you for joining me, Lalo. Thanks for having me once again. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.